electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you very much, Frank. Hi, everybody. Happy Monday. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's coming up. The FDA officially approving the Pfizer COVID vaccine, and the mandates are already pouring in from the armed forces to New York City schools. Vaccine stocks are surging on expectations of more demand. Should you buy or sell the strength? We will dig into that. Plus, a major blow to Uber. A California judge rules the ballot measure they passed in November unconstitutional, meaning the companies could deal with fights about driver status all over again. But you just heard the call in halftime. We're going to speak to the analyst himself who says this stock is still a top pick. And it's a retail rapid-fire redux ahead of this week's earnings. High hopes for Gap, not so much for Peloton, plus how to play the ugly shoe trend. A perfect introduction to Dom Chu, who is here with the numbers today. What are you trying to say about my shoes? I'm, I'm, looking, at them. I'm, I'm looking at them right now, thinking to myself, okay, well, they're not, they're not my plantar fasciitis shoes. But still, let's talk about those markets, because Kelly, yes, they are at record highs right now. The Dow, the S&P 500, and NASDAQ each near its session highs. I'm going to put the gold star next to the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ composite as well. Both of those hit record record highs in today's session. The NASDAQ pacing gains up by 1.5%. As for one of the places a lot of traders are watching right now, it has got to be cryptocurrencies. Bitcoin prices in particular, just a hair below that 50000 mark right now. We did reclaim it at one point. This is the highest level that we have seen since May 14th or thereabouts. If you take a look at that particular move, Bitcoin prices are certainly catching some attention as a result of that move higher in Bitcoin above that 50,000 mark. Check out what's happening with some of the stocks that we closely tie or associate to that Bitcoin or cryptocurrency trade. Namely, what's going on with Coinbase Global, the largest U.S. publicly traded uh, exchange operator for cryptocurrencies, up by about a half percent right now off its session highs. Robinhood markets, some analyst initiations there playing to the factor, but also cryptocurrency strength helping Robinhood markets. MicroStrategy, just about flat on the session right now, was up higher earlier in the session. And then Square as well. All of these names associated with Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies in general. You can see those trades kind of coming off a little bit here. Now take a look at the vaccine makers. Kelly mentioned those. Right off the top, if you look at Pfizer and BioNTech, those stocks up big. Pfizer off the session highs, but BioNTech shares up almost 11 percent right now. Other vaccine makers on the heels of that full FDA approval for Pfizer and BioNTech's vaccine. Moderna up 7 percent right now and Novavax up 6 percent. Watch those vaccine makers. And then speaking of, it's Pfizer related news, but not vaccine for covid related. Pfizer shares will show it again, but Trillium Therapeutics up 189%. Why? Because Pfizer is going to buy the remaining shares of Trillium it doesn't already own at a very sharp premium, about a two and a quarter billion dollar deal from an equity value perspective. And the reason I'm going to show you here, ALX Oncology Holdings. Trillium does cancer treatments. That's what they're known for. That's what Pfizer wants to get. ALX Oncology Holdings is also one of those cancer therapeutics makers. That stock is up 15% in sympathy. Some traders, Kelly, 
or investors and speculators may think, well, what other companies are out there in play in oncology? Well, ALX is one of them. That's the reason why it's up about 16% right now, Kelly, in that session. So we'll send things back over to you. Just the other week, we were talking about how there's been a slow uh, spate of activity for small cap biotech stocks. So big news today on many fronts, Dom. Thanks. You got it. Stocks in general are hitting new highs again as investors embrace riskier assets ahead of the Jackson Hole meeting later this week. Is the Fed papering over weak fundamentals or is earnings growth strong enough to just this ongoing rally. Joining me now is John Augustine. He's the chief investment officer at Huntington Private Bank. John, let's talk earnings per share for the S&P 500. Where were we pre-pandemic? Where are we this year? Where are we going? So it, earnings continue, in our estimate, to come higher, Kelly. Earnings estimates, as you know, are going to be 95% for this quarter. Or earnings, I should say, what we're surprised at so far forward earnings estimates are not coming down. That's a huge support for stocks in our view. Not coming down is not the same as them going up. So, <laughs> so no, we, no, no. Yeah. So let's talk. I mean, what are the expectations now? Um, you know, when, when people are looking at these multiples, you know, as Bob Pisani always talks about time and again and thinking, OK, well, for example, is a 30 multiple justified? Is it possible that I could get decent earnings growth in 22 after the huge rebounds we've seen this year? What would you tell them? Yes. So in other words, we have a 9% earnings growth expectation for the S&P 500 next year. The forward earnings multiple is nine. That's right on the edge, we would say, of overvaluation. We're at two times earnings growth rate. But Kelly, what we're looking at is that bond yield. We're still in an environment where bond, or excuse me, stocks yield more than bonds. The S&P 500 today, 4488, John, you know, 4500 would be the next round number. 5000 we're starting to see in some analysts' price targets. Where are you? You know, what, what do you think is feasible here? Well, our, our equity team looks at 4600 by year end. So they're using the 23 trailing multiple, $200 per share. So that's what we're looking for for the end of this year. Still a little upside. And as mentioned, in a low interest rate environment, still attractive to us. So that, that's what we're looking at now. And again, Kelly, the surprise to us is just forward earnings estimates. We haven't seen them come down very much. Yeah. And in terms of specific likes here, just so everybody's aware, you've got names like Cisco, J&J, Parker Hannifin, Caterpillar, Crown Castle, and Microsoft. So a lot of different industries represented. There's just a question about the Fed and stimulus. Do either move the needle for you? I mean, it's interesting how the market can basically go, we don't really have to worry about the Fed, they're going to figure it out. If that means delay the taper, they'll delay. If it means taper, they'll taper and we'll all kind of deal with it or maybe use any sell-offs to get more risk exposure. It's, it's amazing how little consternation there really seems to be with the Fed these days. Yeah, there is. And actually overnight, we would say what happened is People's Bank of China came in with support for their economy, as you've been reporting, is under some fire on the other side of it, the regulatory side of it. So the Fed this week, Thursday, Jackson Hole, virtual, we don't think they're going to do anything to try to upset markets. They may back off slightly of taper talk, given the resurgence in the virus. We, we just don't see them pulling back stimulus too soon. We just, it's just not in the cards, in our view, from our economic team. Fair enough. I guess a final question would be, if you wanted to recommend, you know, we talked about a lot of the individual names you like, would you kind of go sort of styles or factors, if you you know, value versus growth? I mean, do you try to play that game or do you think that's just too difficult to pin down? Uh, rotation. So there's, a, there's evidence of a high rotation. So we've been doing, our equity team's been doing a barbell. 
So, you know, over the past 12 months, it's, it's financials that are the best performing. But then over the past month now, it goes back and you're almost looking at utilities being the, the best performing. Right. So we see rotation evident. We continue to barbell an equity portfolio. But when you say rotation into utilities, do you think that's persistent? That feels like more of an aberration than anything, right? Right. That's been an interest rate in our view with a 10-year at 1.25% this morning. But, it, but what we're saying is between valuation, earnings, interest rates, and policy, it's best to barbell. Yeah. All right, John, thank you. We really appreciate it covering a lot of ground there today. John Augustine with Huntington Private Bank. Bitcoin is getting back above 50,000 today, as you just heard Dom discussing. It's got a lot of investors, especially younger ones, grinning. We know crypto has exposed something of a generation gap among the investor class. But Kate Rooney is here with some numbers on it. Kate? Hey, Kelly, new investors appear to be more bullish and more exposed to cryptocurrencies. This is according to our new Invest in You Next Gen survey out today. It was conducted by CNBC and Momentum. Those new U.S. investors who got into the markets in 2020 or later are more than twice as likely to own cryptocurrencies. That's compared to more experienced traders or at least those who started getting into the markets in 2019 or earlier. That newer investor also tends to be more optimistic when it comes to crypto. More than a third say they think Bitcoin prices will be higher by the end of this year compared to about a quarter of the broader investor base in the U.S. And take a look. Stocks are still number one, but uh, with about a third of new investors holding shares of individual companies. But in a close second, Kelly, 26 percent of new U.S. investors now own crypto. That is more than twice the level of mutual funds or ETFs, and it's more than three times the level of ownership for real estate or for bonds. And as far as the broader population, one in 10 U.S. investors now say that they own crypto. Men, meanwhile, are, more, are twice as likely as women to hold digital assets, and roughly half of all U.S. investors still say that crypto is high risk, but there are some differences in opinion, depending on age, about a third of those 18 to 34 say that it's risky, while those over age 64 are much more skeptical. More than two thirds describe it as a high risk investment. Kelly. All right. Let's go back to that chart for a second. Did it show that individual stocks are actually still the number one holding among young investors? That's interesting. So it's interesting. It's new investors. So it new is majority investors. younger investors. But there are some older folks that got into the markets this year with uh, some of the other headwinds for retail trading, like stay-at-home orders, stimulus checks, and uh, people had more time in their hands. So a lot of folks did get in. But it does include majority younger investors. But stocks are still number one. That's so interesting. And, you know, it could be stock slices. It doesn't have to be the whole thing. But, you know, anecdotally, I know a few of those over 35, let's say, who, uh, <laughs> who have gotten into the market. <laughs> Kate, thank you so much. We appreciate it. Kate Rooney with the latest and greatest. Coming up, shares of Uber rebounding today, even after a major legal setback. Up next, an analyst who says the stock is still a top pick. Plus, shares of Alibaba getting crushed in the China crackdown, down 25 percent in a month. U.S. hedge funds are throwing in the towel on the trade. Is it only going to get worse for Chinese stocks from here? Imagine a beautiful afternoon. The sun is shining and you get to enjoy it all because you just sat down on your John Deere mower. The smooth ride lets you escape into your yard. Intuitive controls make you feel like you're one with the machine. And with attachments for every season, you can enjoy it all year long. We could keep trying to put you in the moment, but to really understand what it's like to drive a John Deere mower, you just have to get in the seat. 
Learn more at johndeere.com slash get in the seat or visit a dealer near you. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with P. Jim, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. Shares of both Uber and Lyft are recouping their pre-session losses, and they're actually higher today by 1% to 2%, despite that new federal court ruling in California, which said that last year's Prop 22 vote was unconstitutional. Prop 22 allows gig companies to deem workers as independent contractors rather than employees. Appeals are expected, but overturning the exemption could be expensive for these companies. They already sunk, I think, $200 million into all this. Morgan Stanley's Brian Nowak says Uber can manage its regulatory issues and sees 80% upside in the shares, citing a growing delivery business, uh, saying Uber Eats could be undervalued. And Brian is here to join us now to discuss this. It's good to have you, Brian. So, I, I mean, I, I guess the main question is, how much more of a fight is there still going to be over this issue of driver categorization? I mean, would it, we were talking about this this morning, but if they had to be employees, would it destroy Uber's business model? Yeah, thanks for having me, Kelly. You know, I think uh, I'd say a few things on the, on, the, on the regulatory discussion. Number one, I would not expect headlines to go away any near t- in the near term. However, point two, as long as job creation and worker flexibility remain important, which we think they are. For perspective, the gig economy employs tens, even over 100,000 people in California alone. We're talking about a couple million people in the United States alone. We think that the current voter-approved structure, Proposition 22, in California is appropriate. Now, could there be changes to it? Could you have amendments to it made where maybe there is worker compensation that's made to it or added to it or collective bargaining that's added to it? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. However, I think it's a pretty low probability that you're going to have case law and a voter approved Proposition 22 completely overthrown and we move toward a far more stringent regulatory structure that would hold back job growth and actually lead to just fewer people making less money across the entire United States gig economy. Yeah, it was strange to see a judge overrule a vote by the public basically saying he thinks they don't understand, you know, the history. Again, I I would have to read more into it, but it seems like a a pretty big move to to tell voters, no, you don't understand and and to rule it unconstitutional. So let's just put that aside, but point out why this is important Uh, to the ultimate question of profitability. You see a couple ways that Uber gets to, you know, some decent EBITDA in the next year or two. Um, Rides, obviously, you know, rebounding, reduced fixed costs, platform benefits, the delivery business. So, you know, the question of fixed costs is a big one here, right? Correct. I think, you know, through everything that's happened since Uber's initial public offering a couple of years ago and then we went into shelter in and all about COVID and everything else, I think the market needs to remember a few things as we head into 2020, 2022 and 2023. Number one, fundamentally, rides, ride sharing is a cash flow generative business. It's a very, it's a very healthy business that as long as you don't have excess discounting and couponing from competition, which we don't think you're going to have, the business actually does throw out health, healthy free cash flow and EBITDA. And you can see that across multiple countries now where Uber ride sharing is generating 60% plus EBITDA margins in multiple countries around the globe. Point two, you brought up this, you brought up the cost cuts. 
Uber is a company that last year took over a billion dollars of fixed costs out of its company-wide OPEX. And so as we think about recovered rides and even still growing EATS volumes moving into 2022 and 2023, the incremental leverage flowing through from that should be pretty strong. So we think the market is underappreciating what we think could be $2 billion plus of EBITDA next year as we recover, heading to 3 to $4 billion of EBITDA in 2023. So, and that's how you get kind of 80% upside to the base case here. Let me kind of ask you the, the momentum question. What mm-hmm. changes the common perception of Uber as, to some extent, dead money? Yeah, it's a great question. I think it um, it takes performance and the actual results. I think the, the key next date is probably going to be the November earnings print. So 3Q21 earnings, where we are hopeful that the company is going to demonstrate strong incremental rides EBITDA margins in that quarter, which we think is going to give the stock market more confidence to sort of look into 2022 and 2023 and say, wow, if they're able to put up that type of incremental profitability, despite rides not being all the way recovered to 2019 levels, it should help the market start to understand the free cash flow that can come as the business continues to grow off of an even smaller OPEX base than it was in 2019. All right. A $72 price target Best non-fang idea for 2022. Brian Nowak here to explain it. Thank you so much. We appreciate your time today. Thanks, Kelly. Brian Nowak of Morgan Stanley. Coming up, oil rebounding today after a long losing streak. We'll look at some of the energy stocks recovering along with it. Pfizer also hired today after its COVID vaccine got official approval, not just emergency use. Are the vaccine makers about to get another shot in the arm? Stay with us. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Pretty strong session here with the Dow up 279 points as we built on the rally we saw in the future session this morning. S&P's up 1%. NASDAQ is up 1.5%. A lot of different stories driving stocks today, and that includes energy. Take a look at some of the names leading the S&P as oil rallies after that 9% drop last week. Got names like Occidental now up 6.5%. Crude's up 5.5%. Keep in mind, though, Occidental still about 30% below its recent highs. Meanwhile, Madison Square Garden Entertainment is moving higher after a revenue beat. They also reported better than expected operating income on the return of live events. How about a 13% gain MSGE at about $71 right now? And the home builders are under pressure despite home sales rising for the second straight month. With demand outpa- uh, outpacing supply, Lennar, Toll, KB Home can't get gains today. They're declining about 1% to 1.5%. And General Motors is the worst performer on the S&P today. They extended their safety recall of the all-electric Chevy Bolt to include newer models. But when we say worst performer, it's still only down 1.5%. Over to Christina Partzlin-Nevelis now for a CNBC News update. Christina. Hi, Kelly. So here's what's happening at this hour. So we have outgoing New York Governor Andrew Cuomo saying he will not run for office again. In his farewell address, he also congratulated New Yorkers for their bad to rein in the coronavirus. Cuomo also said the harassment allegations against him needed deeper investigations. The attorney general's report was designed to be a political firecracker on an explosive topic. 
and it worked. There was a political and media stampede. But the truth will out in time. Switching gears, Afghan refugees continue arriving in the United States. This group of about 50 going to a convention center in Virginia for processing. The next stop for them is either Fort Bliss in Texas or Fort McCoy in Wisconsin. And on the news, can evacuations from Afghanistan be completed by the August 31st troop withdrawal deadline? Shep will take a look or talk to a former U.S. ambassador to Afghanistan about staying in Kabul longer. That's going to be tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern time. And six in 10 Americans support mask and vaccine mandates for students and teachers in K through 12th grade. This, according to new polls from the Associated Press, about 80 percent of Democrats support the requirements versus only about 30 percent of Republicans. Kelly, there's the news. Back to you. All right. New Jersey's governor also just announcing a vaccine mandate for school teachers. Christina, oh. thank you very much, Christina Parts and Evelis. The dollar store's inflation woes, bearish Peloton payments and what's ugly is hot at least when it comes to shoes. All of that is coming up in today's Retail Earnings Edition of Rapid Fire in just a moment. Welcome back, everybody. Let's catch you up on a few other stories and headlines that should be on your radar. It's time for a Retail Earnings Edition of Rapid Fire because it's going to be a busy week. Here to help break down the headlines, we welcome Dom Chu, Rahel Solomon, and Jan Niffen returns. He is the CEO of J. Rogers Niffen Worldwide Enterprises. Welcome, everybody. First up, a major vote of confidence for Gap ahead of its earnings later this week. Even after its shares have doubled over the past year, Telsey Group raising its expectations for their second quarter. They're bumping up estimates across the board, maintaining their market performance the third $38 price target. Jen, get me excited about the gap. Well, I'm kind of excited about the gap, but this uh, note from Telsey is not very exciting. All they did was sort of come up to consensus, and they're still using market perform. So they didn't really <laughs> tell us much that was exciting. However, Old Navy's doing really, really well, and so is Athleta. They've got problems, of course, with Banana Republic but and the gap division, which they've had problems with for a long time. But I do think they're getting better, and I think Old Navy's becoming a bigger part of the business, just like Athlet is, and they'll continue to improve, and they're closing them down the unperforming stores. So I think it's a good story, and right now we know people are buying apparel, back to school is doing very, very well. So I think the gap is a good story. I think it's actually a better story than what Telsa just gave us. Interesting. Rahel, what would you add? Well, I would add, Kelly, do yoga pants interest you? Because if so, then maybe this is exciting. Yeah, this is really based on the strength that we're seeing at Gap between the two brands that are really working, Old Navy and Athleta. Athleta, of course, continuing to benefit from the casual trend and the yoga pants, which I personally love. Old Navy, of course, doing well from back-to-school sales. So if Banana Republic and the Gap itself don't quite excite you, Kelly, maybe <laughs> Athleta and yoga pants do. I mean, Dom, it has doubled off the lows, but it's also down about 25% off the highs, I think. So this is a, a company that, remember, the, the, the talk for the longest time was about splitting this company up, right? We want to kind of get Old Navy. It was performing so well away from some of the underperforming brands. This is actually a classic case of the portfolio approach working, right? Because you have that Athleta yoga wear side of things doing well, and then you have, you know, everything doing well at Old Navy, which it has for, for a long time now. But I wonder whether or not if things normalize, when people kind of go back to work. Remember, Banana Republic clothes have been a staple for, like, working professionals, especially younger ones, for quite some time. 
If we do, no, I shouldn't say that. When we do emerge from this pandemic, <laughs> I feel like people going back to workplaces will want to go back to places like Banana Republic. So maybe this is a nice portfolio approach for Gap stores. Jan, just a final word on this. Well, you know, what's your sense about what's happening with we have a, a big cluster of events all of a sudden, all these firms pushing off their return to work at the same time this vaccine gets, uh, you know, final approval. And we're seeing a raft of vaccine mandates from public schools and, and parents having to figure out how comfortable they are with their kids going and what expectations they have around how much they might be home because of quarantine and other things. Where does this leave all of the retail names? Amazingly, nothing has happened regarding the sales trends since COVID-D emerged when you look at the apparel and accessories business, which is what you're talking about for back to school, as well as electronics. We haven't seen any change there. It's still, through yesterday, very, very strong. Back to school is very, very strong. It started early. It's going to run long. There's no evidence that's changing yet. It seems like there should be something happening, but we're not seeing it. It's but very strong. The July retail sales report was soft, right? I mean, apparel was down. There's speculation, did back to school start late? Maybe we're going to get a huge August surge and maybe not. Month to month, retail sales, seasonally adjusted, aren't very good from the point of view of judging the consumer. The consumer out there right now in accessories, apparel, and shoes is spending like crazy. She's going back to the store. Traffic was up the first week of August. Traffic was up the second week of August to new record levels. We're not seeing anything wow. from COVID yet. And the retail sales don't tell us anything about what we saw in July. It just it wasn't important. All right, then that is the perfect pivot to our next topic because Peloton is going the other way. The big stay-at-home play is getting a bearish move from Oppenheimer on their prospects ahead of results this week based on indications from the payments platform Affirm. This is interesting also from sort of an economic indicator point of view. Affirm, the buy now, pay later platform, visits to Peloton's website from there are down 33% from June to July. So now Oppenheimer is lowering their 2022 revenue estimate for Peloton by 6%, dropping the price target to 140 because they see a slowdown in product deliveries and subscriber growth. Well, they still have an outperform on the stock, but definitely pulling in the reins a little bit. Yeah, Kelly, I think this really depends in terms of we've seen this this discussion since the company IPO'd, right? Is Peloton a hardware company in terms of the treads and the bikes, or is it more of a software company in terms of the subscription of the actual, you know, programs and the, the workouts? If you think that it's a hardware company, then perhaps this is a little concerning. If you think it's stronger as a software company and it'll really continue to deliver revenue because of its subscription model, well, then this really shouldn't bother you. In fact, I think Peloton hit an all-time high earlier this year, close to 170. So if you like the company fundamentally in terms of software, I don't know. Maybe this is an attractive entry point. And here it is at 107, Dom. It's kind of like the quintessential Apple argument. Do you go off of the expected sales of the next round of iPhones or the total install base? And the answer often seems to be both. (laughs) I mean, it is both. I mean, and if you look at Apple as that that kind of analogy, it is very much about that kind of subscriber growth aspect, the recurring revenue of it. But I'm not sure that the Oppenheimer analysts here are looking kind of that far down the line. They're issuing this call right now around this particular earnings result because of the way Peloton stock has reacted over the course of the last 12 to 18 months going into this particular print. There's no doubt that Peloton is going to have to evolve as a company. They're going to have to figure out ways to kind of get 
their gross margins better on the hardware side of things and get that ex- subscriber base expanded, they got to get more people using it that aren't necessarily buying the bike product or the treadmill product or the possible rowing product or whatever else they have coming out there. If they can kind of grow that content system, that's where it's going to be. But I'm not sure that that's what they're looking at with regard to the next just three to six months. Mm-hmm. This could be a much longer term story. The downgrade doesn't seem to phase me all that much. It's still about 60 percent off its 52 week high. So again, a big reset here and some key earnings out this week. Expectations obviously coming in a little bit. Let's talk now about what's going on with the dollar stores also reporting. And one of the most heated debates now is how far a dollar even goes these days, given what's going on with inflation. So we might just learn the answer in Dollar General and Dollar Tree's results. Dollar General's been outperforming this year, often does, a dynamic that fits perfectly into Piper Sandler's thesis. They think Dollar Tree, the rival, will have a harder time managing supply chain and wage pressures because of its fixed dollar prices. DG has had multiple price points, better positioned to weather cost pressures. It's kind of like the old thing with five below, Jan, and do they need to go to 555 or stick with five and, and so on and so forth? But what are we going to learn, you think, most importantly from the dollar stores? Well, I do think that if you're a dollar store right now, it's a bit of a struggle because the supply chain's tough and you really fill up a container with low value things. So your expenses to bring the stuff here are really, really high, relatively speaking. That's not going to change for a while, certainly not before spring season. And then you've got the dual problem of inflation. And inflation is real at that prime, at that level, and it's really hard to pass that through. And Walmart's taking share. We saw that last quarter. So when Walmart's taking share from you, that's a big problem because they can take big dollars and reduce your share. And that's going to continue to plague the dollar stores as Walmart becomes progressively more aggressive in the space. So I think they've got three problems here they're looking toward. However, saying all that, do I like Dollar General? Yeah, sure, I like Dollar General. <laughs> but I think it's the best of the breed, and I think it's going to be a very tough space. Rahel? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess one thing that I wanted to bring to your attention, Kelly, is not just inflation, but also wage pressure, right? Uh, Dollar sure. Tree in general has, according to the note, 78% of store associates are part-time, so it's extremely vulnerable to wage pressure and wage growth. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I guess if you're looking at the names that were mentioned in the note, Dollar Tree is probably the one that's most susceptible and most vulnerable to waging prices. I think Big Lot's uh, one, of the, one of the best. So um, that's also a big concern. Yeah, it's a great point. Final my word. <laughs> what? <laughs> Dom, final word? I would say that when you look at these particular stores, it's to me much more about what the commentary is going to be about the coming quarters and months without stimulus check payments. Because over the course of the last year or so, a lot of the dynamic for many of these stores, not just Dollar General and Dollar Tree, have been around. And many CEOs have actually addressed it directly on some of their commentary. This idea that federal stimulus checks were a big part of that story, driving some of the spend here. As those things taper off, as enhanced unemployment benefits start to taper off, you wonder whether or not that generally healthy, by the way, right? Right. Very healthy balance sheet consumer is going to keep up that spending. The child tax payments are going out for months still, I believe, into next year. Year. So it may be helping to offset some of the loss there. But regardless, like you said, one way or the other, we all know which way this is pointed. Hopefully, if there's no resurgence in the pandemic and that's it's all going to be trickling off. We'll definitely want to hear for commentary on that. Um, and but finally, guys, perhaps the most important thing going on, um, the ugly shoe trend. I mean, is it unfair to Crocs to call them? Ugly? I, no, I guess it's true. I mean, my son wears them and I hate looking at them, but they're <laughs> the most he loves them and they're so easy Crocs shares have been outperforming like crazy. The Journal really highlighting this trend, calling it the ugly shoe trend over the weekend. Um, But, Dom, how do you think we should play it? 
I first want to know what you really think about my shoes because you called me out on them right at the top of this show. I, I, I was wearing I was wearing the, the fancy sneakers just because people have caught me wearing my sneakers, my COVID plantar fasciitis friendly sneakers that I've been kind of wandering around. But here, here's what I would say. I, I think that the sneaker scene is very much turning into the art scene more and more every day. Oh, and when you have these types of things happen, when you have a secondary market for these sneakers that is as explosive as some people have been reporting with regard to certain limited edition ones, then all of a sudden this becomes much less about the appearance of sneakers and the, even the functionality of them and much more about the artistic interpretation of what a sneaker should be but, and then less about the usability factor as well. Okay, Rahel, here's my thesis, which is sort of like that, but sort of different. And look at the performance of Crocs here today. In a way, I think it's saying, no, we have to take into account the performance, and we just got to figure out a way to make it look pretty, right? The clunker. How are we going to make the clunkers look cool? And, and, and half of the people say, yeah, we're not even going to try. We're just going to go with clunk. And the other half are saying, well, we'll dress them up with a rainbow platform or add some silly, you know. I feel like it's about getting that functionality somehow. I mean, perhaps. I think it's one of those things where if you're in, you know, and you know, you know. If you're out, you're out and you don't know. I mean, this sort of reminds me of when I went to high school. I went to a Catholic all-girls high school, and we had a very sort of rigid uniform. And we would <laughs> sort of go to all sorts of extreme lengths to, to show off our individuality. We would wear, like, crazy shoelaces or whatever we were allowed <laughs> to do. And it does, I think, I think it's worth mentioning that, you know, we've all sort of become more casual and so we're not necessarily dressing up as much and so i don't know these are sort of a fun way to sort of show your personality and also perhaps show that you know you get it you're in the in crowd you know (laughs) in crowd exactly all right i'm not wearing them on air yet the crocs gym but here's my question we've talked to you about the western wear trend and this huge you know stock play boot barn and the cowboy boots and all that how do you play the ugly shoe trend other than crocs well look i'm wearing lucchese's right now so the boot trend is in i've never owned a pair of crocs or a pair of Birkenstocks, and I never will. But it's just the usual trends. You guys are too young. I've been in business forever. (laughs) Think about it. We've had goofy trends and everything, crazy socks. People want to be individualized. What you should be looking for are new, interesting, young brands that can capitalize on the individualization concept of this, you know, the things like Allbirds. So it's not so much where we're going, but where we are. Where we are is in the goofy phase because we're all coming out of COVID and we've been wearing things for 18 months. We got to go what, Dom? I'm just just saying this. I mean, you you guys have all made these great cases fundamentally for why you want to wear them or buy them. Let's not forget that they're an asset class now, right? If you get them, they might be worth double or triple what they are five, ten years from now. Even the Crocs? Maybe. Maybe. I don't know. (laughs) If if the shortage persists, they definitely will be. That is absolutely true. Dom Chu, Rahel Solomon, Jen Niffen, thank you all today for this edition of Rapid Fire. Meanwhile, the FDA has granted full use authorization to Pfizer's COVID vaccine. A former commissioner weighs in on what it means for the future of mandates and whether Moderna and J&J shots will follow the same path. That's next on The Exchange. The FDA granting Pfizer and BioNTech's COVID-19 vaccine full use authorization for people 16 and up. Shares of Pfizer and BioNTech both climbing today after the announcement. BioNTech up nearly 10 percent, Pfizer adding two and a half. And it's up 36 percent already this year. It's just three percent below its 52 week high. The company has said it expects $33.5 billion in revenues from its COVID-19 vaccine this year. Joining me now to discuss, Ronnie Gall is an analyst at Bernstein. Ronnie, it's good to have you. 
A lot of investors have been, uh, you know, trading these vaccine names and the price action today maybe tells you that there was not fully priced in uh, just how many mandates we're starting to see, as I mentioned, from the armed forces to New York City public schools, to New Jersey public schools, you name it. What would you say to people about the stocks? So it seems that a lot of those good news are now priced in. Uh, we now have both the U.S. and most of uh, the rest of the developed world already committing to buy uh, those uh, vaccines from Pfizer and Moderna uh, at a higher price than the first wave of uh, vaccination, about 10, 20 percent. We don't know if there'll be a need for an additional uh, boosting beyond the current boosting that is being discussed. Um, and it seems like a lot of those positive news are, seems to be a bit priced in. Uh, to believe that there is a further upside, you need to believe that COVID will be with us and the need to be vaccinated would be with us uh, for many, many years to go. And uh, we're not quite sure we have the scientific data to argue that just yet. Sure. So, you know, especially when you look at Moderna's performance, it's up, you know, 288 percent this year. What do you think that's it's bigger than now? Bristol? And it Bri- is? It's bigger than Bristol and bigger than Merck Sharpen Dome. Wow. It, yep. Do you think that could ever be borne out in terms of people looking at this and going, OK, they did it. They brought a drug to market, you know, a vaccine to market based on mRNA. You know, now think about what they could do from here. So I think to argue that, there, that this valuation is justified, you have to believe that this technology will be spread out across multiple areas of vaccinology and more of that will be used to deliver proteins to the bloodstream beyond vaccine. So, so you, you're now beginning to get to the point where further upside really depends on, on a, a long scientific horizon for message RNA. And, you know, obviously there's be multiple advances needed to justify that going forward. So if I were to say, what's the next phase of biotech plays as we look hopefully beyond the pandemic? We look at Pfizer's other acquisition today, oncology, the idea, as Joe was talking about this morning, of oncology vaccines even maybe at some point in the future. What, what's the next yeah. play for biotech? So there, there are two things. So first, if you look at the biotech, kind of like mid cap and large cap, the, the, all the action focused on the vaccine names. The rest of the industry have not done particularly well um, if you look at the last uh, 12 months, especially when compared to the market. Uh, and this is because there's a wave of news coming out from DC near term about what the current administration will try to do when it comes to drug prices. And that's all in the next 45 days. Beyond that, uh, we think what the, probably is going to happen is a broadening of the, of the love to the sector. Um, and uh, coming to the fourth quarter beyond that, we are looking for some recovery in the smid cap biotech, uh, more importantly in the, in the large cap pharmas. Um, one of the obvious choices that Pfizer have made and other companies will make would be to place their cash uh, by buying some of those uh, innovation happening outside of the vaccine world. For the vaccine field itself, we are looking right now at some of the proof of concept of things that you've discussed. For example, uh, using those vaccine technologies outside of covid Influenza is the obvious next target, but there will be others. And then there's also already some trials going, trying this in cancer vaccine. BioNTech certainly has an ongoing trial with Regeneron in that uh, respect. I think results expected sometime in the second half of next year. So the next set of news about the vaccine technology will be about its applicability outside of COVID. That's, uh, again, it is very exciting news. There's Trillium up 200% today on that Pfizer acquisition. A reminder that they do have cash now with which they might be then looking uh, to that next phase of medicines. Ronnie, thanks for joining us. It's good to see you today. Pleasure. Take care. Ronnie Gal. U.S. markets are near record highs, but some hedge funds aren't seeing big returns because of one particular problem. The hit the hedgies took last quarter. And why next? Remember, you can catch the show anytime, anywhere by listening to and following The Exchange podcast. We're back in a moment.
Welcome back. Alibaba, JD.com, Baidu, all well off their 52-week highs. You can see these declines. Some of these names falling more than 60 percent as the Chinese government has cracked down majorly. And those losses have hit some hedge funds. Leslie Picker joins us now with the numbers. Leslie. Hey, Kelly, unusually weak is how Goldman Sachs is describing recent hedge fund performance. Chinese ADRs may be partially to blame here with a third of hedge funds holding an American depository receipt of a Chinese company at the start of the third quarter. Since February, the average Chinese company trading in the U.S. has been cut in half with the most popular ones among hedge funds lagging the less popular ones. Alibaba, for example, had ranked as the top five most popular hedge fund holding for 11 consecutive quarters and 2Q that dropped down to number seven still popular nonetheless other names include JD.com Baidu DD and Billy Billy all topping the most popular hedge fund holdings of Chinese companies now short interest had risen modestly during the first half of the year but not enough to negate the losses on the long side Goldman notes that the quote overall popularity of China ADRs registered as the highest in our data history making clear that hedge funds were generally not prepared for the regulatory shift and its impact on share prices. As a result, Goldman's hedge fund VIP basket has lagged the S&P 500 by 13 percentage points during the past six months, matching 2008 as the worst stretch on record, Kelly. You know, it's funny you say 2008, Leslie, because as you were talking about this, I'm thinking to myself, the whole point of investing with a hedge fund is that they might have better information on the ground channel mm-hmm. checks, local sources. Some. What is the edge? If they've missed this so utterly and completely, then why am I paying for access to this performance? It's a very good question, and I'm sure that's one that the hedge fund investors are going to be having with their managers. But China overall has been seen as this edge, the idea of paying a hedge fund manager, because the, uh, they understand these geopolitical uh, nuances. They understand various regions. Hedge funds were attracted to China because of the growth potential and the massive population size, the uh, value of these local tech giants at the time. Now it's clear that they weren't quick enough to really trade out of these names before just a broader fallout. It it really does beg the question and and is definitely going to cause some soul searching within the industry. Yeah, just incredible stats there uh, that you brought us and a a huge story on par, like you said, with 08. Leslie, thanks very, very much. We appreciate it. Leslie Picker down at the NYSE. Still ahead, the great resignation is well underway and a new study reveals one reason why more than half of employees have quit. That's next. As we head to break, the reopening trade is a winner today. Look at the cruise lines all climbing. Norwegian, Royal Caribbean, Carnival, all higher. We're back in a moment. People are quitting their jobs in droves in what's been dubbed the Great Resignation, pushing job vacancies to all-time highs. And a new survey from productivity firm Lattice found that 54% of respondents are looking to change jobs, and 43% say their career paths have stalled or, quote, slowed to a crawl. So what's behind all the dissatisfaction and turnover? Joining me now is Jack Altman, the co-founder and CEO of Lattice. Jack, it's good to have you. I can understand from the demand side of people can live new lifestyles in new parts of the country post-pandemic, but why on the supply side, if you want to call it that, would they would they say that their their work has suddenly stalled? 
Well, I think it's like an interesting time in the world where employees have more choice than ever. And I think people are constantly able to see what's out there now. And so I think we kind of live in a time now where companies have to really think about how do I rehire this employee every day and make them excited about their work because there's there's really more choice than ever and it's easier to change roles than ever. What accounts do you think for people leaving uh, previous roles and looking for new ones. I, we talked to Kevin Roos earlier this year. Part of it he was talking about was this YOLO economy idea that people go, you know what, I only have one life to live. I've always wanted to start this business or live in this different part of the world or you name it. Um, others might just realize that because of working online, working from home, they can go somewhere that was previously not possible, right? Yeah, I think what you're touching on is very real. I think over the last 18 months, people's values have changed in many cases. People sort of saw their board reshuffle for their lives and they said, hey, maybe I want to explore a different lifestyle, a different city, maybe my work that I'm interested in has changed. And so I think that has really uh, been an impetus. And at a time when the economy is doing so well, when you can work remotely, people just have so many options. And so I think all of those things combined with the fact that now that I'm working remote, maybe I don't have as close connections with my colleagues, with my company. I think that leads to sort of um, an, an ability for people to be more comfortable moving around. Yeah, and I was glad that the journal, the Wall Street Journal, had this big story, I guess yesterday over the weekend, about how people are realizing it's sinking in that this style of work is going to be with us for years. I mean, just the realization that we thought a couple of weeks from now everyone was basically going to be back at the office to suddenly going, wait a minute, maybe not till 2022, and it won't be the winter, it could be the spring. You know, it's a whole other year of this. You guys had some interesting stuff where you talk about ways to maybe help uh, for firms to help them manage uh, their workforces better at a time like this, suggesting, for instance, no meeting Wednesdays, recharge days for the team to disconnect. What are some other ideas? Yeah, I think that that's right. And I think that comes from the sentiment that you need to think about your employee as your customer as a company. And so what you want to do is set a clear direction and then you want to help people feel motivated, feel engaged. And so you want people to feel like their uh, needs are being met. So things like recharge days where you give people time to themselves, things like a no meeting day, things like where you help people understand their career path at your company are really important so that people see here's what's in it. You know, as I put work in over the coming years, people really want to feel connected to the mission. They want to feel career growth and they want to feel a sense of uh, community and sustainability. So I think companies need to focus on those things. I also thought it was funny as a side note, you said that companies are running more surveys than ever. So we have, we're going to your survey. We have all these surveys we're talking about, but you think companies themselves are basically trying to figure out what's going on with their own workforce? Yeah, I think it's the same thing as like in the past, companies would like survey their customers and they would ask the users that they served how they were doing. And I think companies are now coming around to this idea that if they treat their employees like their most important customer, their most important user, then everything's going to work itself out. Uh, I totally believe this. And so I think companies are now trying to find out how can we listen to employees? How can we make sure that our product, which is working at our company, meets people's needs? One final question. Has overall productivity gone up or down in the meantime, as a result of all of these changes? You know, there's a lot of different ways to measure it. And I think there are things that uh, have improved with remote work and there are things that were easier uh, when you were in person. But I think by basically any metric, it doesn't look like productivity has gone down in any sort of broad way, which is part of why companies and employees are realizing this remote and sort of hybrid flexible work thing is here to stay because it is effective. It is effective. We're seeing GDP back to pre-pandemic levels, even with the smaller workforce. But like you said, the question is how long we can sustain that if people are working overtime, maybe getting a little burned out. Jack, thanks for joining us to talk about it today. Good to see you. Thank you. Jack Altman of Lattice. And that does it for The Exchange today.
You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.